0: I'm Sahil Desai. I'm Kevin Tidmarsh. And this is Hidden Pomona.
1: Hidden Pomona is a podcast about the forgotten, obscure, and overlooked parts of Pomona College's history. We'll be releasing episodes every other Friday until the end of April. Stick with us as we uncover the hidden history of our school. For the next three months, we'll be investigating the questions about our school that we've had since orientation. What were relations like between the college's founders and the original inhabitants of the land? How exactly did this decidedly New England-style liberal arts college get founded in the middle of Southern California? And what are the stories of the early students of color at this school? Let's start with that last one. Right now,
0: we're going to focus on the period between 1887, when Pomona was founded, in 1958, when the college accepted its first cohort of black students. But for its first seven decades, the college was almost entirely white. That's not to say that some students of color didn't attend or even thrive at Pomona, however. In 1897, Fang Fu Sek enrolled at Pomona and became the college's first Chinese student. He spent four years at Pomona's prep school and a year in the college before transferring to Berkeley. Although Sek didn't graduate, others followed in his footsteps, and by 1919, the number of Chinese students on campus was big enough to have a dedicated club with six members. Pomona was a lot smaller in 1919, but Chinese students still only accounted for about 1% of the student body. Even considering
1: Pomona's location in Southern California, There were very few Latino students. Julian Nava, who graduated in 1952, remembered in his memoir there being only four other students with Spanish surnames. Nava started working on a Ph.D. in Latin American history at Harvard right after graduation, and went on to become the U.S. ambassador to Mexico in 1980. The history of black students at Pomona begins much earlier, though, and I'm actually going to turn it over to my co-host, Sahil, who wrote pretty much the only historical account of Pomona's first black graduate, if I'm not mistaken. It's sad when he put it that
0: way, but yeah. Winston M.C. Dixon arrived in Claremont in 1900, at a time when there probably weren't any other African Americans in the Inland Empire, and only about 2,000 in the entire city of L.A. He was born to two freed slaves in 1872 in a farming community close to Crockett, Texas, which means he actually would have been almost 30 when he arrived at Pomona. There basically wasn't any public education for blacks in the South at the time, so it makes sense that it took him some time to get to Pomona. I'm really curious as to how Winston Dixon could have ended up here in 1900, especially considering that Claremont is more than a thousand miles away from Houston, and that Pomona was pretty much unknown at that point and had fewer than a hundred students. Probably the only explanation that makes sense is that the Congregationalist Church played some role in getting him to Claremont. Both Pomona and Tillotson College, a small black college where Winston Dixon studied before coming here, were founded by the Congregationalist Church. During his four years at Pomona, Winston Dixon seemed to have thrived, I looked through all the yearbooks from his time on campus and was absolutely floored by how many clubs and organizations he was a part of. The Student Life, the Choral Union, the Literary Society, and the Prohibition League.
1: Wow, he was all over, as Pomona students are wont to do. So
0: there's a ton of photos of Winston Dixon from his time at Pomona, and he doesn't really seem to be an integrated member of his class. In some pictures, he's standing off to the side, and while he's a member of an early frat on campus, he's not pictured in most of their photos for some reason. It's not hard to imagine why. What's really amazing to me is that Winston Dixon was a class-day speaker for the class of 1904, and an LA Times reporter who made the trek to Claremont for the event wrote that he had, quote, the magnetic voice and manner of a trained orator. He was actually the first black graduate of any college or university in Southern California. Then, he got law degrees from Harvard and Boston University, and for the next half century, he established himself as one of the most well-respected black attorneys in Houston, Texas. In 1915, there were just 19 black attorneys in all of Houston, serving a black population that had swelled to 30,000 people. Most of the cases he litigated were in the divorce or probate courts, which seemed kind of strange to me, but then I talked to a professor who studies the history of black Houston, and he said that this was basically all the work that black lawyers could do at that point. It was such a difficult profession that many black attorneys decided to leave it entirely. Over the course of his career, He became the president of the city's Colored Bar Association, and then later helped found the Houston Lawyers Association, a mentoring organization for black attorneys that still exists today. From the son of freed slaves to a Pomona and Harvard-educated lawyer in Houston,
1: it's hard not to think that Winston Dixon lived an absolutely remarkable life. But to this day, there's nothing named after him on campus. Not yet, at least. Right.
0: Other schools have buildings and scholarships named after their first black graduate, but I think it's pretty surprising that Pomona doesn't have anything especially since he was the first black grad of any college in Southern California. Anyway, after Winston Dixon graduated in 1904, it's not like black students suddenly became a frequent presence on campus. There wasn't another black student in Claremont for the next 11 years when Arthur Williams enrolled at Pomona in 1915. Born in Houston in 1897 to an influential columnist for the Houston Informer, a powerful black newspaper at the time, Arthur Williams grew up in Houston's Fourth Ward, just a few miles southwest of where Winston Dixon lived in Houston. There weren't that many African Americans in Houston in the early 1900s, so I have a hunch that it must have been Dixon who introduced Arthur Williams to Pomona and then played a role in his coming to the school. I mean, obviously, I don't know that for sure, but that's my best guess about how Arthur Williams could
1: have ended up here. So when Arthur Williams came to Pomona from Houston, he was also the only black student on campus. But that didn't stop him from being an active participant in the Pomona community. He played baseball, and he was in a glee club, the choral society, and the debate team. His bio in the 1919 yearbook described him as having, quote, a pleasant and thoughtful disposition, and said that he, quote, has seldom missed an opportunity to help or do a kind turn for a fellow student. After leaving Claremont, Arthur went on to get an
0: MD at Bellevue Hospital in New York, ultimately becoming the first black physician in the affluent New York suburb of White Plains. He married Edna Bassett, a New York native, and had three kids
1: Eileen, Betty, and Edward. Arthur Williams worked hard as a doctor, but it didn't always come that easy to him, especially as the only black physician around. White Plains was a segregated town, and despite his qualifications, he was discriminated against in his profession. And he saw and felt the effects of racism against the black residents of White Plains and the neighboring cities in Westchester county.
2: but they definitely felt the sting I think of segregation. There's no question about that. Um, I know that Arthur had issues um, people weren't didn't take too kindly to him being you know a doctor in town.
1: That was Eileen's nephew, Dr. Stephen Johnson, a neurosurgeon and instructor at Harvard Medical School.
2: But eventually, just by force of will, their character, it's the character of these people, they basically became accepted and it just became, that's the way it was.
1: Not content with the status quo, Arthur advocated for the issues that affected his community in White Plains. As president of the city's NAACP chapter, Williams fought against businesses that discriminated against African-Americans in Westchester County, and he facilitated meetings and events for black women in the medical profession. He was even written up a couple times in The Crisis, the NAACP's official magazine. Sadly, he died of a heart attack in 1953, but he left quite a legacy behind him, a legacy that lived on through his children.
0: Eileen was born in 1926,
1: Arthur and Edna Williams' oldest child.
0: She spent her childhood in White Plains. Today the town is a little more diverse, but back then, there weren't many black families in town. In fact, Eileen ended up being the only one of Arthur and Edna's children who went to Pomona, becoming the college's first black woman graduate in 1948. She took pride in being a Pomona grad, following in her father's footsteps. Her nephews remember seeing college memorabilia around the house, and she made sure they considered Pomona when they were applying to college.
1: After Eileen graduated, she moved back to White Plains. She married Boyd Johnson, a teacher and Philadelphia native, and took his last name. She started work as an employment specialist in charge of recruitment at the General Foods Corporation, now part of Kraft. What's especially remarkable is the story of how Eileen got the job through sheer determination. Brendan Williams, Eileen's nephew, told me the story his uncle Boyd told him about how Eileen ended up with a job.
3: She had known that, you know, there's this big company there in White Plains, not far from where she had grown up. and. Uh you know, she basically just took her resume there and just walked in there and was like, hey, I know I can do this job. She was like, look at my resume. It says that I can do this and then some, and, uh, you'd be foolish not to hire me. And that's basically how she got the job there. And she was there for over 25 years or something like that. So, I mean, they obviously saw that, you know, she had what it took to, to go out there and just take it. And that's exactly what she did. And, you know, that's, how I think of her a lot of the times, when I think of her in like a business sense, she was very much so like, hey, if you're not happy with your situation, go out there and do something about it and change it yourself. Like, no one's going to hand you anything. And um, and I think, you know, that was extremely, you know, I would say different for the time, especially being, you know, a woman of color.
1: Once at General Foods, Eileen worked her way up the corporate ladder and when she was promoted to personnel assistant in 1967, the news got picked up by black newspapers from North Carolina to Indianapolis to San Antonio. A black woman achieving the type of success in the professional world that Eileen Johnson had was practically unheard of.
2: Now, I can tell you in my, my opinion, okay, just looking at her and the way she lived her life and what, what she was about and the kind of um, intellect she had, Were she born today, were she a 20-year-old today, she'd be a CEO of a major corporation. No question. No question. And I I think that that, you know, that ceiling was there for her then. And whether it frustrated her or not, I would never know because she didn't. She she just wasn't like that. She had her own style and grace, and she, she carried herself that way.
1: Dr. Johnson especially noted the role that Eileen played in boosting other people's careers. Working in human resources, Eileen made a point of recruiting and mentoring women and African Americans. Her own hiring made her a pioneer in the corporate world, and she wanted to help out others who face the same hardships as she did. One of the women that she mentored was Leola Bryant. Leola remembered her relationship with Eileen in an interview with Ben Himmelfarb of White Plains Library.
2: She was hired by General Foods, to to break the color line in in jobs, and um, Mm. through the NAACP, in the Urban League, Uh Uh and she started. She hired me as what I worked. I was hired at General Foods, one of the first as um, secretary in the research marketing division.
0: Not having children of their own, Eileen and her husband Boyd were very close to their other family members. After her mother died, Eileen took care of her sister Betty, who was developmentally disabled, and she frequently welcomed family members into her home when they needed a place to live.
2: But she had a profound effect on a lot of people, really, in terms of, you know, career directions, etc. Including me, by the way. (laughs) I mean, I I didn't go into business like her, but I... But she was she was a friend to me at a time when things were very difficult. My parents divorced, and um, I was sort of not sure what I was going to do in life. And she and my uncle invited me to come live with them, um, which I did. And then I actually ended up going to Westchester Community College for a while, uh, taking some courses, and then I kind of got back into my groove but because, really because of them, because of her. She was that kind of person. And frankly, there are a lot of stories like that. Young men or women who, you know, were helped by by Eileen and Boyd.
1: Much like her father, Eileen was extremely involved in her community. Her family members especially remember her involvement in the church, the Grace Episcopal Church in White Plains. But she was also a member of the NAACP and the Board of Trustees of the Greenberg Public Library, among countless other commitments. She passed away in 2004, but her pioneering, selfless spirit that broke academic and professional glass ceilings lives on in those that knew her.
0: After Eileen Johnson graduated in 1948, for quite some time, some of the very few black students to step on Pomona's campus weren't Pomona students at all. They were students at Fisk University, a historically black college in Nashville. They came as part of an exchange program between the two colleges that aimed to foster greater understanding between black and white undergrads. The program lasted over 20 years, from 1952 until the 70s, and it was especially popular among Pomona students who wanted to get involved in the civil rights movement in the South.
1: What's interesting is that it took a couple tries for this partnership to get off the ground. The first time that the idea was proposed, in 1949, Fisk and Pomona both liked it, but it was just too impractical to set up an exchange between colleges that were 2,000 miles apart. George St. John, Fisk's dean of the college at the time, wrote that, quote, If it is possible to facilitate the admission to Pomona of Negro students from California, that would seem to me a plan of equal or greater value than the student exchange plan. The Fisk pomona program started a few years later, when two Pomona students pushed for it after attending a conference on race relations at Fisk. Still, it wasn't until 1958 that Pomona took St. John's advice and admitted more than one black student at a time. We talked to Lauren Foster, professor of politics at Pomona, who said that this exchange program was a way for the Pomona administration to avoid or delay admitting more black students.
4: And, and, and I don't think it was malicious, but it, it's kind of in kind of intuitive that, you know, we want to do something for the other, but we really don't want to get kind of too embedded in those communities, and we're just kind of really not sure of, of, of what it's like. So, you know, it was, I think, outwardly good for Pomona, uh, it showed a kind of a relationship between North and South, uh, and Black and White. But, you know, was it meaningful? Yeah, who knows? I, 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 I'm I, not going to venture or kind of comment there.
0: The program was a true exchange. One Pomona student for one from Fisk. If no Pomona students were interested in going to Fisk, the program would be suspended for the semester. This actually happened a couple of times.
1: In a 1965 interview with the L.A. Times, Fisk student Leslie Smith praised what she called California's relaxed, integrated atmosphere. Linda Kenney, another participant from Fisk, said that the experience was, quote, tremendous. Not everyone necessarily had such a positive experience, however.
4: I think for someone from the outside, it was just kind of too overwhelming socially. Uh, and what I mean by that is no one said or did anything that was offensive but just the whole kind of cultural dynamics were just very different you know, you're a stranger in a strange land Um, nobody's going to do anything explicitly offensive, but you know it's just kind of like when you walk in a room you're always on call you know, tell me what your experience is or was but you know, and, and I think for any 18 to 22 year old, that can be overwhelming.
1: Joan Merle Owens, who later became the first black woman in the U.S. to receive a Ph.D. in geology, came to Pomona in spring 1953. Years later, she spoke on her time at Pomona in a profile in the book Black Women Scientists in the United States. Quote, people were friendly, although the fellows were shy about dating. But I went to the junior prom and I also went out with some people who are now very famous. But this is not to say that there weren't occasionally problems. I had one friend who invited me to go home with her and spend Easter vacation. She went home a couple of weekends before Easter to discuss it with her parents, and when they found out I was black, they said no. She came back to school in tears. I wasn't surprised, but it really hurt her.
0: This goes to show that while some early students of color may have thrived at Pomona, this was far from universal. Ved Mehta became the college's first Indian student when he enrolled at Pomona in 1952. The son of an affluent doctor from modern-day Pakistan, Mehta's family lost all its wealth when India and Pakistan split in 1947. Ved Mehta came to America as a high schooler to study at the Arkansas School for the Blind. He would go on to become a highly accomplished Indian-American author, serving as a staff writer for the New Yorker for over three decades. In 1989, Mehta wrote The Stolen Light, which is all about his four years at Pomona. The book paints a grim picture of Pomona in the 1950s. Mehta found Pomona incredibly stifling. One of his close friends, a Japanese-American student named Kay, struggled throughout his time at the college, eventually committing suicide as he neared graduation. To say the least, it was a traumatic experience for him. Here's what he had to say about early students of color at the college.
5: But you know, it was a private college with lots of money. I mean, it wasn't like University of California or UCLA where um, students had to struggle to pay their fees. I mean, anybody who came to Pomona probably had enough money to um, to not have to struggle for it. But I remember some students, especially the Nisai, um, children born of Japanese descendants. So people who were Nisai or blacks, or not there were too many blacks, or um, Also, some people who were Jews, who didn't have enough money and couldn't raise enough from scholarship or grants, they probably did
0: struggle a lot at uh, Pomona. In his book, he writes that, quote, I found the atmosphere at Pomona parochial. For instance, Anne Clark, perhaps the brightest student in our class and one of my readers, would skip over long passages in the Iliad in a signed book because she said they were too gory to be read aloud. Perhaps because I had grown up in the cosmopolitan British Empire and had lived through one of the most politically intense moments in Indian history, and perhaps because in all of Claremont I was the only Hindu, the only Indian, the only blind person, I found the atmosphere of the place stifling in all sorts of ways as time went on. I felt that if I got to a large cosmopolitan university, I would be back in touch with a wider world. I would find more kindred spirits and feel less isolated. In the 1950s, Pomona had some pretty questionable traditions that that found appalling. Uh,
5: women, when they entered as freshmen, were weighed and measured. So they were like a piece of meat, almost.
1: Wow, I definitely heard about that before, but that doesn't make it any less gross. The stories of Vaid Mehta, Winston Dixon, Arthur Williams and Eileen Johnson illuminate the hidden histories of early students of color at Pomona. While these rich histories have rarely, if ever, been told publicly, they're just a few examples of the many exceptional people who've made contributions that reach far past the gates of Pomona. This episode
0: was reported, written, edited, and produced by Sahil Desai and Kevin Tidmarsh. Kevin
1: produced the theme music. Hidden Pomona is recorded in the studios of KSPC. Special thanks to Lauren Foster, Stephen Johnson, Brendan Williams, and Vade Mehta for taking the time to talk to us, and to Susan McWilliams for the editorial guidance. We'd also like to thank Ben Himmelfarb at White Plains Library and Jamie
0: Weber at the Pomona Archives. And thank you for listening to our first episode.
1: on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hidden Pomona. For photos and more info about what we talked about in today's episode, visit us at medium.com slash hidden pomona. If you have any feedback or suggestions, email us at hidden at gmail.com. Kevin Tidmarsh, and I'm Sahil Desai, and this is Hidden Pomona.